in a second. There it is. And um, basically, it's, it's, I know we can use it for C4, that it's um, an explosion of life. We can call all this. But it's really talking about, I think, some, some uh, flowing of discipleship that we want to see our church go through where we're going to talk about Christ and that through our coming to Christ, <clears throat> we, we, we get a calling. And then that leads to a cause which ultimately would lead to community because, church, let me just say this. If we're only coming here on Sunday and we don't have life with each other outside the walls, we're really missing a wonderful opportunity to build the kingdom of God. Amen. Um, everybody needs somebody. And I believe that in all of this right here, I'm hoping and praying that it will be a blessing to you and a blessing to this church. And so I want you to pray into this. I want you to pray that God will show you, that he will speak to you, and that it will create and generate new life, new calling, new cause and create a greater community of believers within Harvest. So I'm excited about this. If this is your first time, you picked a great week to be here. Can we put our hands together one more time for our guests? <laughs> Praise God. But we have an awesome speaker uh, this morning. I, I, I think you all know him. Uh, Pastor Brad, why don't you guys put your hands together as he comes to bring God's word for us this morning. I'll talk. There it is. We're definitely on. So good to see you here today, brave the fog and everything else. You know, um, Pastor Sky, I didn't mention it, but on last Wednesday night, they had a special guest night. It was Taco Wednesday night, and six young people gave their hearts to Christ. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Lots of great things are happening over there. If you know a young person, tell them they're missing it if they're not here on Wednesday night. So an amazing opportunity. And you're missing it if you're not coming here on Wednesday nights as well. Be with us. If you can't be with us, join us in prayer on all that. Well, I'm very excited to uh, have the privilege to help launch this opening series, uh, opening sermon of this series. Now, we just came out of a, a powerful series called what? Radically Transformed Lives. And I tell you, it was powerful all the way through. How many of you agree? Wasn't that great? If you did not get a chance to hear one or more of those sermons, please go back and listen. It builds on each other, and those are the ones that launched us now into this one, C4. Now, I was a little clued out, but I got clued in that C4 refers to explosive compound, or maybe that energy drink out there. Whatever it is, ultimately think of the explosive energy for radical transformation. Can you say amen to that? You see, radical transformation cannot come by our own efforts. We must invite God to work and release what's called his dunamis, his dynamite power in our lives. You can't be radically transformed by yourself. You need God to work. And so I want you to think of your favorite recipe, whatever that is. Now, in our house, we've got a lot of great bakers, so it might be chocolate chip cookies. We have some of these amazing brownings. Uh, and how many of you realize that when you bake something, Every ingredient is important. Have you ever left out something? Or maybe switched the salt and the sugar? It doesn't come out quite the same, does it? And uh, so definitely every ingredient is important, but most of the time the order of the ingredients is important. We make these things called Buckeyes at Christmas. Some of you may have benefited from them. Uh, but anyway, you have to start with the right thing. If you start with the chocolate, you've missed out. You've got to get it all in the right order. And so what I want you to see is that each C is critical for explosive growth, growth in your life. Christ, calling, cause, and community. But not only each ingredient. If you miss one of them, you're missing part of the, the whole package. But the order is important. You see, we don't start with community. 
We don't even start with a cause. Those are great, but we need to go back to the beginning, and we need to start with the foundation. And the first C is what? Christ. Say that with me. Christ. The first C is the foundational C, and we're going to hammer it hard today and next week. We're going to have two weeks on each one, as Pastor Matt said. So the title for today's message is, The Person of Christ, Who Do You Say That He Is? The Person of Christ, Who Do You Say That He Is? Now, we're going to ask a lot of questions. That's the way we're going to organize today's message. And the first one is an even more foundational question. What did God say about Jesus? What did God say about Jesus? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to start there today. And this is the story of the baptism. In verse 9, it says this, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Powerful moment. It was the launching of Jesus' ministry. And in this critical moment, we have all three parts of the Godhead present. Do you see it? Jesus is there, obviously. He's right there. And then he goes under the water, and he comes out, and he sees the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then thirdly, he hears the voice of the Father speaking over him. It was so important that it be so clear exactly who Jesus is that every part of the Godhead participated in this powerful moment. It was the Trinitarian presence. But not just that, listen again to these words that were spoken over him. And I'm going to use the NIV for this particular version. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. Would you read that um, with me as well? You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Most of you are very familiar with this. Something that I wasn't familiar with, became aware of a few years ago, is a technique that the rabbis used called stringing pearls. I don't know if any ladies have a pearl necklace on today, but you know a pearl necklace, it's arranged in separate pearls that come together to make a powerful effect, right? So what the rabbis did, and even uh, later um, Christian uh, ministers did at times, is they would string pearls of verses together that made a powerful statement when you put them each against each other. Well, God the Father is directly doing this in this spot. Now, I want to set this up for you uh, by just sharing with you very quickly I brought my Hebrew Bible here. I'm not going to actually read it to you, but I just thought it interesting for you to see. First of all, it looks a little different inside. Letters are a little different. And it starts from the back. It goes from right to left when you read it. All right? And so that was a whole new adventure when I was in a, a divinity school trying to figure that out. But I, I want to show you that there's a the table of contents is back here. And the order of the books is different. It starts with Genesis, but it ends with Chronicles. This whole book is called the Tanakh. Say that with me, Tanakh. And Tanakh stands for um, the, uh, um, the three, beginning of the three parts, T, N, and K. The T represents the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We know that. The N stands for Nevi'im, which represents all of the prophets. 
And the K, it's called the Ketuvim, which is the writings. So in the prophets, you obviously have all the major and minor prophets, but the writings are all the historical books. Three different parts to the Bible, the Tanakh. Now, why is that important? Because when God the Father spoke over Jesus, he referenced three different verses, and they each come from a different part of the Bible. First of all, he said, you are my son. You are my son. Psalm 2, verse 7 says this. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He directly referenced that messianic passage over his son. And then he says, whom I love. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. And here uh, the Lord said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. It was a direct reference back to that. And if you follow that passage, God was saying, I want you to take your son and go sacrifice him. In God's grace, he came and he provided a sacrifice so that that didn't have to happen. But he tested his obedience. But he was pointing to a time when God the Father himself would take his son, whom he loved, and sacrifice him. And then it says, with you I am well pleased. And that points to Isaiah 42.2, which says, um, or 42.1 rather, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. In that one statement, God was saying, this is my son, this is the Messiah, and I'm proving it to you because I'm pointing to three verses out of the Old Testament from three different parts of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points to Christ. Can you say amen to that? He was declaring it. See, God unequivocally declared the sonship and the messiahship of Jesus as he spoke over him at his baptism. That's what God thinks about Jesus. So now, let's go just a little bit further. Right after that, we have uh, a very important passage and challenge. And we want to ask, what did Satan believe about Jesus? What did Satan believe about Jesus? And we have the temptation that followed immediately after the baptism. Listen in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to break into this with a point. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. How many of you be hungry after 40 days, 40 nights? Some of us are hungry after about 40 minutes. But anyway, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God or since you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. You see, Satan believed that Jesus would sell out to the flesh, that he wanted something. You're the son of God. Just make it happen. But Jesus answered, it is written, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are not to sell out to the flesh. We're to follow his leading and his guiding. And then uh, the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, you shall give, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. It was believed it was probably the highest point. And that if he threw himself off, he would not fall just to the ground of where the temple was, but all the way down into the ravine. And this would, made a, a, would make a spectacular impression if he fell, but the angels picked him up. You see, Satan believed that Jesus would sell out for public recognition. That he can make a splash and get everyone to understand that he was the Messiah all of a sudden. But Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not tempt 
the Lord your God. And then lastly, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. See, Satan believed that Jesus would sell out for temporary authority, temporary glory. And God said, Jesus said, no, I will only worship the Lord. Now, here's the thing. This is what Satan believed about Jesus. It was wrong. But notice this. We mimic Satan if we embrace any of these same values. If we sell out to the flesh, if we sell out for public recognition, if we sell out for temporary authority, we will be mimicking Satan and we will deny the authority of Christ in our life. Can you see that today? Let's be careful who we're embracing. What, who, what did God say about Jesus? What did Satan believe about Jesus? And now thirdly, who did others in Jesus' day say he was? Now we're going to land our plane here. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to stay here for most of the rest of the message. And so they are in a place, a very significant place, where Jesus brought them. It was actually at the gates of Hades. I think Pastor Matt preached about this recently, where a pan was worshipped, and it was believed to be a direct entrance into the uh, gates of hell, as it were. And when Jesus came there, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do men say? He asked his disciples, what, what, what are they saying? And they, now, by the way, he said, son of man. Son of man actually is a messianic title, but most did not really realize that. It came from Daniel. So he was trying to find out whether his disciples got the essence of this. And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had already died by now. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Well, John the Baptist was a radical revolutionary. Elijah had great miracles. Jeremiah declared God's judgment. These were all great possibilities, but notice this. Each of these answers was something less than the Messiah and the Son of God. It was something less. It was so critical to figure out who Christ was. Now, I'm going to ask you this. Who do people in our day say that Jesus is? Who do people in our day see that Jesus is? If we had a class, I'd let you speak back, but um, I've got the mic, so here I go. <laughs> Number one, some people, many people in our day say that Jesus is a tradition. He's a tradition. We, uh, people say, I'm from a Judeo-Christian nation, so it's obvious, uh, um, you know, that Jesus is just part of that tradition. And that's where Pastor Matt was talking about the different uh, streams. We've got the Bible Belt. We've got the CEO, Christ, uh, Christmas and Easter only Christians, all that. But you know what? It's obvious in our country that we don't respect him because so many just as easily use his name as an expletive. It's a tradition, but then it's so simple for us just to use him in a way that doesn't honor him, doesn't respect him, and cheapens his name. Here's another thing. Too many in our day say that Jesus is a good luck charm. Let me explain that. A couple, many years ago, actually, I was um, serving um, a summer in Africa in missions. I was, went to Ghana, West Africa. And um, uh, I didn't, of course, bring a car there. I rode a, a, a taxi that was kind of assigned to the uh, pastor that I was assigned to. And I tell you what, in Ghana, traffic rules were only merely suggestions. 
It was crazy. There'd be a green light that might suggest that you go. Red lights were, you know, probably think, look a little bit, but keep going. And there'd be potholes, and be, whatever lane you were in didn't matter. You were swerving. I, I, my prayer life grew immensely riding in that taxi. But something that I thought was amazing about all, so many of these cars is that they all had verses on them. They all put a verse somewhere on that. But watching the way they disregarded the rules of the road told me these weren't actual Christians driving these cars. They just saw putting a verse on their car as a good luck to maybe protect them in some way. It was, it was uh, in the society, but it clearly wasn't something they were embracing. It was a good luck charm. Uh, just recently, uh, we had uh, Sharon in our, our office share her um, celebrate her birthday, and she was talking about a tradition down in Louisiana and others, especially down there, called the king cake. Have you ever heard of the king's cake? All right, well, if you had, I, the first time I learned about it, it is to honor uh, the day, Epiphany, when the wise men came and they worshiped uh, baby Jesus. And then it continues all the way up until Mardi Gras. Uh, at that point, that's the last time you get to indulge before you start uh, the season of Lent. And he was, she was saying, it's an amazing cake, it's delicious, but, she said, but it's always interesting because they always put baby Jesus in the cake. I don't know if you can see this, but there's baby Jesus, a little uh, plastic there. And what happens is, as you're cutting the cake, if you get baby Jesus, that's a sign of good luck and prosperity to whoever finds it. I'm just thinking, I hope I don't choke on baby Jesus. <laughs> and apparently what they do is they sell you the cake and they put baby Jesus on top. You put it in the cake because they don't want to get in trouble if somebody chokes on him. But who is that Jesus? That's not Jesus. What is that? That's a good luck charm. That's not who Jesus is. And let me suggest another uh, suggestion. Uh, answer is that Jesus is a safety net. He's a safety net. He's like insurance that you can purchase, like nationwide is on your side. Jesus is on my side. I want to make sure that my house, if it gets burned down, that I've got provision. Well, I want to make sure if my soul gets burned down, I've got fire insurance. So at some point, I have prayed, and that should protect me. How much relationship do you have with your insurance agent? <laughs> Hopefully not a lot to start with, but basically you paid them something, right? And they just simply want to talk to you every year, make sure you paid them something. Is that our relationship with Jesus? We pay a little bit, maybe put a little token in the offering, and that will protect us the rest of our lives. We do it as a safety net. The last one that I think is especially challenging that people say that Jesus is, is a good and moral teacher. Haven't you heard that one before? He's a good man. He was a, a, a great teacher. Well, there's somebody in our past here in America that embraced this named Thomas Jefferson. I share this in my classes at Regent, and uh, we were able to locate the actual Bible. And I want you to go with a few pages with me on this. Look at the title page. First of all, Thomas Jefferson said, this is the Jefferson, for his Bible that he put together, this is the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. Now, that's pretty powerful, right? Four languages. But notice, he says he's extracting it. He was the ultimate first cut-and-paste person. He took those Bibles, he literally cut them, and he glued them together and created his own Bible with this. Now, notice it says the life and morals of Jesus. Let's look at the next slide. You see here on the left is the uh, Greek, then you've got the Latin, you've got the French, and you've got the English. We'll just focus on the English today. 
All right, so we are, here we have in Luke chapter 2, and let's uh, uh, go to the next slide. We kind of zoom in. Okay, there it is. So he starts with Luke chapter 2, and it says, To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Next. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. Do you notice a few things missing? Number one, we have no mention that Mary happened to be a virgin. We also have no mention of any amazing angelical appearance to she uh, shepherds or the wise men. Nothing supernatural is in this Bible. Now, let's go to the end of his Bible. And we're here. You see, this is the very end part. We've got the four languages. Now, we're going to zoom into the last several verses of his Bible. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. End of story. Is anything missing from this Bible? Yeah, pretty much. He's still in the tomb. But you need to understand, Jefferson said Jesus was a good and moral man. He was a great teacher, but that's it. He was a classical deist. And what does that mean? A deist believed God came, created the world, got it started, and disappeared, never to be involved with the world again. Now, this is a challenge. This is a view of Jesus. In fact, Thomas Jefferson said, this is his own words, I am of a sect by myself as far as I know. I've created my own version of religion. Interesting. Now, C.S. Lewis Got challenged by this. I just watched a powerful um, video two days ago about the most uh, reluctant convert. It's powerful. And he said, you cannot decide that Jesus is a good and moral teacher. You have three options to say about the Lord. Either he is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he's a Lord. Let's read this together. Uh, you don't have to read that out loud, but I want you to follow along. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be a God. Be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was not, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Isn't that a good word? If you want to follow on, Mere Christianity is a powerful book to follow up and get this clear in your head and in your heart. This is there. None of these answers, by the way, let's take a look at them again. That he's a tradition. That he is a good luck charm, a safety net, a good moral teacher. None of these answers will release Christ's power in your life. If you believe this about Christ, he's not going to make you radically transformed. It's not going to happen. So let's ask this question. What did Peter declare when Jesus asked that? Jesus uh, said, but who do you say that I am in verse 15? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Would you read that with me? You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Now take a look at this. Christ means Messiah. He nailed it. He said, you are the Messiah and you are the Son of God. And that was revolutionary because the Jewish people didn't believe anyone could be the Son of God. And yet Peter declared it. That he clearly affirmed the Messiahship and sonship of Jesus. He clearly understood that Jesus was the fulfilled expectation of the whole Old Testament. God had shown that to him. He also understood that this was the declared identification of the Father over Jesus. Now, what happens, though, when we make that clear, there's a response to lordship from us, and it's submission. Submission comes when we're clear on who Christ is. So just a little bit later, from that time forth, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is mind-boggling. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Can I tell you that two words that never belong together is no, Lord. When you say to the Lord, no, or far be it from you, you're trying to advise the king of all the universe, the one who made this universe, and tell him he's wrong. Uh, that's not going to be a good idea. So, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter tried to tell Christ what he should do. And when he did that, he received the rebuke addressed to Satan in the process. Amazing turnabout. Peter definitely learned from that, pro part, um, that process. Now, we need to ask, how do we avoid Christ's lordship? How do we turn from Christ's lordship? Well, let me suggest a few things here as we pull this together. Number one, we leave him on the cross. I'm telling you, the cross is powerful. And to have a depiction of Christ on the cross is necessary to understand. But you know what? We can't leave him on the cross. Because he's not in the tomb. He's risen. He is the Lord. And can I tell you, he's alive right now. He is moving and he's working. And we take him and we put him into this box. We say, you're still on the cross. We leave him on the cross. Number two, we limit him to a catchy meme. In our society now, we do nice little trite sayings about Jesus and we put it on social media. That's not who Jesus is. He's much bigger than that. We, thirdly, we restrict his access to our lives. Says, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, but you can only change this part of my life. You can only go into my front foyer, but you can't get to the rest of the house. He's not Lord if he can't get to every part of it. What does it say? He's not Lord of all if he's not Lord, uh, if he's not Lord at all, if he's not Lord of all in our life. Thirdly, we still try to call the shots. Jesus, I need you in my life, but you just sit over here, and whenever I need you, I'll give you a call. But tonight, I'm going to be watching this, and if you would go somewhere else while I'm watching this, that'd be great. That's not Lord. We, fourthly or fifthly, whatever it is, we come to him only after exhausting all other avenues of satisfaction. We do every other option, and then if it's not working out, we turn to God. Now, I'm using we, because I'm not saying you, I'm pointing back at me. We do this. Now, I have to be honest. This came from my daughter's TikTok, but I thought this was really good. Look at this statement. 
You can't expect God to be the source of your peace if the world is the source of your satisfaction. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. You can't expect God to be the source of your peace if the world is the source of your satisfaction. And so the last way that we avoid Christ's lordship is we replace Christ with an idol of our own making. We replace him. Timothy Keller gave a powerful definition of an idol. This will convict you and maybe something you need to process this week. It says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. My question to you, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for each person here today. This is a hard-hitting message because we need to be real. We need to be honest. If we don't get it right about you, then we won't get it right about anything else. And so, Lord, I pray you're moving and ministering right now to each person. You see, the key question in your life is, who do you say that Jesus is right now? Not who you said before, but who do you say he is right now in your life? Your answer to this question determines whether you will experience life-altering, explosive, radical transformation, or merely superficial image management. Who is in your life? Why did you even come to church today? What is your answer today? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I wonder if there's anyone today that would say, Pastor Brad, it's clear to me that I've never really honored Jesus as Lord in my life. But this morning, I am choosing to choose him. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor Brad, as you close, would you pray for me? Because I'm declaring Jesus as my Lord and Savior today for the first time. Anyone want to raise their hand and say, that's me. I'm declaring today for the first time as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Second of all, some of you may be realizing that you've, uh, there's an idol that's creeping up in your heart. You've called him your Lord, but you're starting to let something else get as much credit as him in your life, as much influence in your life. And this morning, you want to take that idol and you want to smash it. You want to give that idol up and leave it today. Or maybe there's some of you that simply desire today to bow your knee. We're going to bow our knees at the end of time, but you want you today to bow your knee once, once again to him and say, you're my Lord and you're my Savior. We're going to take a moment. We're going to start singing. I'm going to invite you, if you, for any of those reasons, or if you simply just want to come up, and bow your knee before him. I want to invite you to do that. 